Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Tim Burrows chats with entrepreneur, influencer, speaker and internet personality Gary Vaynerchuk about what sets VaynerMedia apart. I genuinely believe we build and create far bigger business results than the global creative shops that everybody puts on a pedestal. What happens when you are the centre of your business? It means that if I die tomorrow, they'll get very high-paying jobs because they'll be extremely sought after for their skill set. And would he ever debate Mark Whitson? And I don't know this about Mark, but many people want to debate me because they want the attention. But first, the week's topics. SCA cans its Today FM breakfast show. Here, there and everywhere throw their focus entirely behind audio. Carl Stefanovic returns to TV with more of a whimper than a bang. The Australian media industry gets even more comfortable in bed with Facebook. First up, Southern Cross Austereo has decided to do away with a breakfast radio team altogether, dumping current hosts Ash London, Ed Cavalier and Grant Denyer for a music-only breakfast broadcast. Ed and Ash are going to stay on with the network, Ash in her 6.30pm weeknight show Ash London Live, and Ed in his spot filling in for Kate Langbrook with Dave Hughes in the 4.30pm slot, while Grant will continue to make appearances across the network. Viv, this isn't a massive surprise. We've all kind of been waiting to see what SCA's next move would be. You've been kind of watching the Sydney radio scene for a while now. How was the show performing? Well, firstly, I think I'd like to put it on the record that I'm not convinced that Grant Daniel will continue to make guest appearances across the network, Ooh. much like when M. Rusciano left the show to be replaced by Ash London. When they farewelled her, they said that she'd be back on air all the time, filling in anytime anyone is sick, coming to update them on what she's been doing, part of the family, blah, 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 never to be seen again. So <laughs> I strongly suspect that's what's going to happen with Grant, but, uh, you know, could be wrong, but it does feel like they've been very firm with Ash's plans, very clear with Ed's Mm. plans. Uh, Yeah, Grant, he'll he'll still definitely (laughs) maybe do something sometimes. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Look, in terms of how the Today FM Breakfast Show with Grant Denyer, Ed Cavalier and Ash London is currently tracking, it kicked off this year with a 4.4% audience share, but in the most recent survey was back to 3.1. To give context, Carl and Jackie O, who used to be on Today FM, often get upwards of a 10% audience share. The M. Rusciano and Harley Breen show did dip as low as 2.8% when it was on air, but still that 3.14% just isn't where a station as big as Today FM Mm. wants to be, nor is it where it can afford to be. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's been a fairly steady decline. I've got the piece of paper in front of me here with (laughs) the hosts over the years since Kyle and Jackie O left. And I mean, SCA have thrown everything they could at this slot and nothing stuck. Do you reckon music only was kind of the only option they had left at this point? You know how people have a specialty when it's a trivia night and people are like, oh, I'm a Harry Potter expert or <laughs> I can tell you every elf from Lord of the Rings. I've always felt like 
<laughs> I don't have a specialty, but I think somehow accidentally Today FM Sydney Breakfast <laughs> has become my trivia specialty. So oh, look, that's terribly nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> worse than the Lord of the Rings absolutely elves and Harry worse Potter. Than, oh, God. Absolutely worse. I thought I picked the two nerdiest things to make myself look better there, but I, I have failed miserably, such is my uh, radio nerdiness. But look, there's been 13 hosts oh. since Kyle and Jackie O left at the end of uh, 2013, and I don't actually need these pieces of paper in front of me <laughs> to tell me who they were. So they went to Jules Lund, Merrick Watts, Sophie Monk, and former Spice Girl Mel B. They then jumped to Dan and Maz, then mm. Rove McManus and Sam Frost, then M. Rusciano and Harley Breen, then Harley left and Ed Cavalier and Grant Denyer came on board, then M. Rusciano left and Ash London came on board. That is a lot of hosts in a short period of time when in the other breakfast slots they've remained pretty stable. Kyle and Jackie O were still at KISS FM on 106.5 mm. in Sydney. 13 people have been through the ranks in that time. Not that I think Kyle's ego needs to get any bigger, <laughs> but if I was him I'd be feeling pretty chuffed that 13 people couldn't replace me. And it's worth noting as well those aren't nobodies those aren't people that have only survived in radio those are people who have done pretty successful things elsewhere rove obviously while the pairing with sam was a bit of a misstep rove is fairly successful elsewhere sophie monk did great on the bachelorette so these are people who actually have audiences that want to watch them and somehow they can't get people to turn over to a radio station in the morning yeah look it's a bit like breakfast television where people say it takes up an un a disproportionate amount mm. of media time and of people speculating about talent movements considering how many people are actually listening. But it's about getting people on board early in the day and as ridiculous as it is, it does show that if you've got a breakfast show that's not performing, people won't switch over to you later in the day. I know it would be so easy to click a button and switch stations, but the data would show that you need that strong breakfast mm. lead-in to get people for the day, which helps you command audiences, which obviously helps you command dollars, which is what commercial radio is all about. As much as we can talk about audiences and content all day, it's about the dollars. And Today FM is going to struggle to do that if they've got a 2.8% lead-in from 6 to 9 in the morning. You asked before whether music will work. It really just feels like their only option at this point. Mm. I hear that they've been spending way too much on talent for the returns that they're getting. Look, some speculation uh, has gone so far as to say that they might even still be paying Rove McManus, who was on air back in 2015-ish. So, I mean, if they're still paying him, there's a lot of people who've been through the ranks since him and, as you say, not unaccomplished people and mm. therefore not necessarily cheap people and it's, it's not delivering for them. So maybe music is the only option for them and then the other speculation is are they just using this time to reset take the pressure off the surveys because if there's not a big personality there, if they get 2.8%, mm. it's just music. There's no one to trash. It won't take up as many inches in the Daily Mail because you won't be able to plaster a photo of M. Rusciano from Instagram looking a bit tired and all those mm. manipulative things they do to continue a negative narrative. If it's just music, it's less expensive, it's less headline worthy, then perhaps they can spend time recruiting a big name show or maybe they're even going to try and completely revamp 
Today FM in terms of music strategy, in terms of direction, in terms of the demos that it's targeting? Because this is what Nova Entertainment's Smooth FM did a while back when they wanted to reset and then they gradually changed the music strategy, gradually changed their approach, made it all about the music, got the audience used to that direction and then reset in terms of talent. So there's a possibility that Today FM is trying to take the pressure off for a while and then come to market with something completely different in the next year or so. Yeah, and it's worth noting as well, um, SCA due to release their results next week for the mid-year reporting, if perhaps those results are going to be a bit um, depressing, which given the current climate and given the way everyone else is reporting, it's quite likely – it's probably a good move for them to be able to say, hey, we're being proactive. We've gotten rid of, you know, what's not working. We're trying a different strategy. We're going to go away. We're going to work on this and we're going to come back strong for 2020, say. So it's kind of giving them a chance to get on the front foot before all the negative headlines come out. So it's not necessarily a bad move. Yeah. And it's a good time to reset as well. I also hear speculation that Kate Langbrook, who is on air in the drive slot from 4.30 to 6.30 with Dave Hughes, Uh, She moved to Italy a while Mm. back and was sort of convinced to stay on air through, you know, the complicated technological means that we have to broadcast from Italy to Australia. And I'm hearing increasingly that perhaps that's not going to last and she wants to stay in Italy. So whether that means a reset for their drive program, Ed Cavalier has been filling in for her recently with Dave Hughes. So they could just be, look, resetting lots of things, taking some time, They will need to think about their music strategy. I don't think they can just, you know, plug in the So Fresh hits of 2001 (laughs) and pray to God that it works. I would love that. Yeah, I would too. I I would love that too. But again, save money, just plug in my Spotify. It's got some absolute bangers in there and I'm I'm not going to cost you any Fridays. Guys, I pay for premiums and I'll let you have it. I was going to say that. Their only cost would be covering my Spotify premium and surely even SCA can afford that. So, look, we'll we'll see. I am – unfortunately, we're recording this before I get to speak to the Hit Network's head of uh, content, Gemma Fordham. But I imagine she'll be sticking to the party line anyway. It's not like she's going to jump on the phone to me and reveal that there is a big secret plan in the works. That they do actually want access to your Spotify account. <laughs> yeah, well, look, Gemma, it'll cost you ten ninety nine a month. <laughs> Next, sticking with the theme, ARN parent company HTE throws its faith into audio. Holding company Here, There and Everywhere, or HTE, which owns radio business ARN, released its mid-year reporting this week, with a couple of big announcements thrown in for good measure. First up is What's Out, esports business Gfinity, which will be closing at the end of 2019, Chief Financial Officer Jeff Howard, and longtime Group General Counsel and Company Secretary Yvette Lamont. So, Hannah... That's quite a big change there. Last time I spoke to Kieran Davis, the CEO of HTE, I believe we were on stage at Audio Land, mm. Mumbrella's audio conference, and I thought he was quite enthusiastic about esports at the time. What's yeah. changed? I think it may have been on this very podcast, in fact. I mean, less enthusiastic than he had been about esports in the past, perhaps, but did still seem to suggest that his faith was in the product. Um, I guess what's changed is it's not performing. 
um, and perhaps here, there and everywhere are feeling like there's a bit of pressure on either. They did say in the reporting that it wasn't able to turn things around quickly. There wasn't going to be kind of a clear growth path for the business in the future. So therefore they weren't willing to kind of put the time in that it might require to get that kind of growth. So instead what they're going to do is they're closing it at the end of 2019, but they also flagged kind of across the wider business that anything non-audio, which includes their agency and motive um, was going to get a review. So it really seems like they're putting after the sale of ad shell, they're putting all their eggs into the audio basket and anything that can't play ball is getting booted out the door. I did speak to Kieran Davis before this podcast and before we knew what was going to happen at Today FM. And I did ask him about the future of emotive because in that financial report, which was released to the ASX, the wording was very much if their companies can't sort of be aligned with HTE's audio strategy and can't become audio companies, it very much seemed to imply that they were not long for this world. So I asked point blank, well, Emotive is not an audio company. Are you going to keep Emotive? And he would only respond with yes. <laughs> and then I was just met with a lot of tra- traffic noise as he ran from investor meeting to investor meeting. And I didn't really know what to do with that. I was like, oh, right. All righty. Well, definitely haven't given me much uh, sort of wriggle room there but he did he did then point to emotive's video capabilities and how Mm. much ARN properties rely on video content as well and and the strategy around that so he seems to think that emotive is going to stick around Uh, but I mean one of my the most interesting points for me here is HTE is a holding company, which I've found bizarre for quite a while. You mentioned that they sold outdoor street furniture company Adshell, which is now sort of integrated into O Media. I don't really understand how a company is here, there, and everywhere when it is just primarily Australian radio network. I don't know that we need an HTE and an ARN mm. when so many things are increasingly being integrated into ARN. What is here, there, and everywhere? Where is it? What is it? What is an HTE? I think that ARN is so much more aligned with what it is, and it clearly identifies its purpose and its product. It is the Australian Radio Network, and they can lay claim to being the number one network with a very clear name. A here, there, and everywhere. What what is it? <laughs> I don't know. And it's worth noting as well, HTE chairman Hamish McLennan said in the reporting, we are first and foremost a radio and audio business since selling AdShell and over the last six months have spent a huge amount of time focusing on the objective of creating Australia's most complete and compelling audio offering. So they're even saying in the reporting that they are an audio business. That's kind of where they want to focus. To me, uh, this whole thing sounds a little bit like they're maybe prepping to sell ARN. Um, they're kind of folding everything they can into it, getting rid of anything that's alongside it. So in which case, yeah, you do wonder what, where does that leave something like a motive? Is it going to get rolled into ARN perhaps? But I don't know whether that really suits the bill. Um, yeah, I, they, I just, I don't know. It seems really clear to me that they've got no interest in anything that isn't audio focused and therefore I don't really understand Kieran backing that they're going to hold on to a motive. Well, I guess we will see. But again, Kieran's focus on audio, I did ask him why they think they're in such a strong position because in that half-year report, so much of what they talked about was that they are uniquely positioned to capitalise on the current audio market despite 
the sort of softer commercial side of radio in recent months and that general anxiety in Australian business and in the marketplace about how strong the economy is, particularly with what's happening in the US as well and mounting fears over trade wars and all of that uncertainty, he is still sure that ARN is the one that can do it. And when I asked him about that, you know, which felt like quite a bold claim given SCA's podcast capabilities and all the other networks moves into that space. And a lot of what he said was so strong about ARN was its affiliation with iHeartRadio, which it has extended that license until 2036 or something, which, you know, is still, that's that's a long, long time. And and their podcasting and, and streaming and integration opportunities there. So he was definitely throwing a lot of support and love behind iHeartRadio. So maybe, maybe that's why he has so much faith in it at the moment. Yeah, so iHeartRadio did deliver a 48% revenue growth in the first half of 2019, which is obviously quite significant. Um, it's The other thing that was mentioned in the report was that um, in terms of their radio business, HD&E or ARN are looking to continue growing their ratings and revenue by recruiting and retaining the best radio talent in Australia. Um, so it kind of... It's interesting because you would think that maybe they're going to start focusing, you know, more so on the podcasting side of things, but they have still said they're really keen on maintaining that radio side. So I've, I mean, if they can marry the two into the perfect business, then maybe that is the way forward. Up next, Carl Stefanovic is back on TV, but are audiences excited? So after being dumped from his morning TV slot at the end of 2018, Carl Stefanovic returned to screens this week with This Time Next Year, which first aired in 2017 and returned for its second season this year. But it was a fairly subdued return for Carl, with the first episode drawing just 686,000 Metro viewers, compared to 1.282 million for 2017's launch. It came second in the time slot behind 10's Have You Been Paying Attention, which delivered 735,000 Metro viewers. So, Hannah, Brittany, is this a Carl problem? Is this a program problem in that the novelty has just worn off? What has caused that halving of audiences in that gap that we've had between the program? Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I was thinking about this today and the only difference between then, between 2017 and 2019 is that Carl is no longer on today. It's not, you know, when sometimes we compare shows to say like, oh, back in the day, Big Brother pulled, you know, 6 million viewers or whatever. And that's a long time ago. TV audiences aren't watching like they were then. Between now and 2017, less of a split. Um, So I, I don't know if it's maybe a Carl problem, which I don't, want to say necessarily but maybe it is I also think it was perhaps not the right choice for them to take 2018 off I know with the way the format of the show so basically they meet with people and then a year later they meet with them again um I would imagine with the format of a show like that it's quite hard to kind of schedule it how you ideally yeah, you want to schedule it, it. this yeah. time next year and only give people a week to turn their <laughs> lives around so I think they did need that year yeah so but perhaps that wasn't the right idea because uh, I for one had kind of forgotten about the show entirely over that time. Um, so maybe that's been the issue. Maybe it's either people are sick of Carl, people have kind of forgotten Carl is great now that he's left today, or people just forgot the show was great. 
I think as well we just need something new. Um, How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's been a lot of, oh, this is back this week, I think, with Rove, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, Sea Change is back. Carl's back. Um, I actually read a story in The Guardian this morning by Beverly Wang, which um, wrote about Diversity Arts Australia's report, which was launched this week into the state of cultural diversity in the Australian arts, media and creative sectors. So it found that, sort of unsurprisingly, culturally and linguistically diverse Australians are underrepresented. So over half of the organisation surveyed had no cowled representation at any leadership level. And it's interesting because what Beverly points out is that Karl Stefanovic is a third-generation Serbian-Australian on his father's side and so therefore classified as cowled. So she says, but just think about what their numbers would look like if we tightened the focus to first-generation and foreign-born non-Anglo-Australians, to Eastern South Asian, African, Muslim and Arab people, to people from Central and Latin America diasporas, to people with disability, to people with diversity of gender, class and migration status, I strongly suspect we'd see an even starker data set with numbers approaching zero. And so I feel like that story and then chat about whether or not we should see Carl back doing the same TV show, whether or not we should see Rove back doing the same TV show, it's just such a reminder to me that I think commercial networks need to do a little bit more of what, uh, you know, the ABC is doing hmm. with shows like Employable Me, You Can't Ask That, Benjamin yeah. Laws, Waltzing the Dragon. And I know that ratings are obviously a big consideration, but there's a need for that. Like people want that. Yeah. And it's interesting as well because – I've probably been on this podcast before uh, touting nostalgia and how important it is and how amazing it is. And I, for one, was super happy that Sea Change was coming back. Mm. But if you look at the figures for Sea Change, so the first episode came in quite hot. The second episode dropped significantly after that. Um, So the first episode delivered 787 787,000 Metro viewers, second episode 533. So there's Mm. quite often a drop from the first to the second. That's a fairly significant one. Mm. To me, that suggests that maybe nostalgia doesn't have the pull we think it does. Um, I know I was speaking to Rove earlier this morning, in fact, um, about his return to TV, Saturday Night Rove, which will return on August 24th. And I was kind of asking, you know, what does the landscape look like now compared to 2009 when Rove Mm. Live went off the air, which obviously he's been on TV since then, but that's what we remember him most for. And he said that he thinks audiences are crying out for the type of show he delivers. He thinks audiences are crying out for that kind of Saturday comedy delivering. He referenced Hey Hey It's Saturday. Um, Here's a little bit more of what he had to say. I do feel that there is an audience, and for someone like me, I'm still very young at heart. I'm still a consumer. I'm still very much engaged with wanting to to watch content. Um, I am now a married father, and so usually I am in on a Saturday. I sometimes go out, but I'm usually Saturday night is my night in. Um, And I know that there are people like me. It doesn't mean that we're quote-unquote old and therefore don't want to, you know, really watch anything too too interesting. 
Like it is, like they're, they're even all and they're still, you know, they're still you know, young people, consumers who, who want to be entertained. And so there is a level to which I think if you put the right show out there, mm. then maybe you will find this audience that has otherwise been lurking elsewhere because they haven't had any options. So what we're looking for with this series Obviously, we have long-term hopes and dreams, and the idea being that this is a seed that can be planted and with the right care and love and attention, uh, it can grow into something that will that, that could be quite successful. So it's interesting. I hear what he's saying and I hear what you're saying, and I think probably the perfect marriage is somewhere in the middle. And, I mean, you look at what is doing really well on Netflix and mm-hmm. why people love what Netflix is doing, particularly in the original series space, it is diverse. You've got shows like Ali Wong and a whole lot of other people of colour, people with disabilities, Mm. like interesting stories about, you know, all types of people. I think that that's what viewers really want. And even if they're not getting it from commercial TV, they'll go to Netflix. So, Hannah, when you spoke to Rove, in, in light of all this um, diversity conversation that you and Brittany have just had, back in the day on television he used to ask people who would you turn gay for, which in 2019 feels like a distinctly awful and awkward thing to ask. Is that what audiences are crying out for on a Saturday <laughs> night, finding out who B-grade oh, celebrities God. would turn gay for? Wow, put me on the spot. Um, I do not. So I did ask him, you know, I said, you obviously got away with a lot of stuff during Rove Live that you maybe will not get away with in 2019. Has that changed the way you're coming at this show? And he uh, was very adamant that no, it has not. And they still are just coming in to make a funny show. Um whether or not that means we're going to see the return of segments like who would you turn gay for? That seems unlikely. Um, but I don't think he's going to go on the record as at any point as saying uh, that 2019 is putting the handcuffs on him. All right. Up next, more alignment between the Australian media industry and Facebook. So despite all the posturing after the ACCC inquiry into digital platforms, it seems that many Australian media companies are just getting more and more comfortable getting into bed with Facebook. After announcing last month that seven major publishers had made content deals with Facebook, which would see them create custom news content for the social media platform's watch tab, 10 has now announced it will be going even further than news with spin-offs of its TV staples, including The Bachelor, The Living Room and The Loop, to run on Facebook. Hannah, what does all this content look like for Facebook? Is it something that we're just going to – more stuff for us to scroll past? (laughs) Yeah, I mean it – yeah, yeah, it kind of is. I don't really know. Um, So, yeah, a whole host of new news shows, which I've been watching since they launched. Um, 10 already did some of this kind of social content – they did a Dancing with the Stars show and a uh, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here show. It's Australian Facebook creating a copy of what the platform is doing in the US and it's obviously trying to position itself strongly against other places to get online content, YouTube, Netflix, Stan, etc. Um, in terms of how watchable it is, I'm not actually sure. I don't know whether people are tuning into Facebook 
for news. I don't know if people are tuning into Facebook to watch behind the scenes for Dancing with the Stars. I spoke about this on um, ABC Radio a couple of weeks ago, and uh, there was some goading of oh, isn't this dangerous that people aren't going to know the difference between news and Facebook anymore? And I think we're already so far past this point that I think publishers putting their news on Facebook isn't a new thing just because they're now creating news specifically for Facebook. I think anywhere we were that was blurring the line between social media and news reporting, we're already so far past that, that to me, this is just all they're doing now is making their partnerships obvious, which maybe that's a good thing. It does just feel a bit, funny to me though when they're trying to lobby the government about Facebook and its immense power and its market manipulation abilities and all of that but then they're still giving it more and more opportunities you know they're feeding the beast while simultaneously trying to contain the beast and questioning well why does it keep growing it's not fair I can't believe how big it is how does it get all this content it's making so much money from my content it's not fair have my content it just I understand that they need to diversify where they're putting their content and they need to reach people's eyeballs where people's eyeballs are. It does just feel like a risk though and something that they might look back on in a few years and be like, oh, where did we go wrong? Oh, that's where we went wrong. When we gave them everything ever and we created exclusive content for them that they could only get on this platform that we were trying to curtail. I go specifically to Facebook to watch the punky recaps of The Bachelor 10 are now on that bandwagon with their own recaps, which they put on Facebook. You know, they've had the likes of former Bachelor Maddie J and comedian Tanya Hennessy watching the program and then people go to Facebook to watch them watch the program. I understand that friends and enemies in the media and tech game at the moment are all sort of one and the same thing and you've got to use each other while also trying to beat each other. But my goodness, it does just feel like Australian media companies can't keep complaining about Facebook if they're just going to keep participating in this game. I think it's a matter of the frog has been boiled. (laughs) Everyone knows that they're the frog, (laughs) but they've been in it so long and everyone else is already in the pot too and it's too late to jump out. Like it really feels like no one could have ever predicted that Facebook would be where it is now when it was launched in like 2005 and it's so embedded not just in media but in people's lives that you kind it, – it, it just feels like publishers are reluctantly doing it but knowing that do they have a choice. It's like a toxic ex or something. Like they just, keep, <laughs> just hearing you talk about that where it's like, oh, we know it's bad and we know we're going to regret it later, but all right, like yeah. we'll just do one more deal with you. <laughs> but even in like the ACCC report, basically that entire report, that 623 pages or however many it was. It was 623. Was 623, <laughs> thank you. That's my special topic. was literally just to say, hey, guys, Google and Facebook are real big. Um, yep. So <laughs> I don't I side with Brittany on this one. What a publisher's gonna do? There's no other option. Mm. Well, that's a very sad state of affairs. And <laughs> I am getting the wind up from our producer here because I think one, we've gone on too long, two, we're just getting a bit sad and self-indulgent, <laughs> and three, I have to go and speak to Gemma Fordham to find out what on earth is going on at Today FM. So up next, Tim Burroughs sits down with Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs>
Terry, you're probably the best example I can think of. I was thinking about this as, as, as we were coming in, of someone who's used content marketing to create a personal brand and from that create a business. Yes. And I think what's really interesting, we're, we're even seeing it as we're recording this today, is you've sort of evolved to the point where it's not about planning for your content marketing. You've, you, you talk about documenting. Yes. Creating yes. moments all the time. That's and right. just naturally recording. How did you get to that point? Practice. You know, it's funny when you, you open that sentence, it's really interesting because I built a business in my 20s, a wine business, that later I layered you know, content with Wine Library TV in 2006 on YouTube. And then to your point, that was almost like the baton being passed to me going into content creation as it segued from wine into business. And off of the business content, I started one of the largest marketing agencies in the world, right, independent. Um, and so... I just think practice, you know, I'm now 13 years into producing content and for the first five and a half years, I produced a wine show every single weekday. And then I took a little bit of a gap to establish Boehner Media, And then DRock, you started when? 2014? And then from 2014 until now, for the last five years, you know, I've been pretty much producing content almost every day, whether Ask Gary Vee, a vlog and over the last year or so, have just built out an incredible machine of content, hundreds of pieces of content, you know, potentially a day sometimes if you count individual tweets and things of that nature. And so I think it was an evolution of understanding that you can't be overexposed in such a noisy world. And so, and, you know, listen, I think there's a lot of people like me that do have a lot of things to say and have the ability to say them differently even though they're somewhat saying the same thing. And um, so I just think it's been evolution. Now, I remember you talking, I think on your own podcast or talking to somebody else, about you, you almost had to go through the process. We had to ask yourself, I think the word you used was, is it douchey to have yeah, a videographer the, follow myself around? That was the big moment. You know, three years ago, you know, it, when D-Rock came into my world, he was obviously coming from a YouTube video creation world and Casey Neistat was such an icon to that community and a couple of other people, but they were vlogging first person. They were, in essence, truly directors, producers, filmmakers, and something just happened, you know, we talked a lot about it, and through self-awareness and through conversation, I don't know exactly how, but basically D-Rock's like, hey, I really wanna make a vlog, and you know, the thought of walking around Earth and having somebody follow you around with a camera to your point, I was extremely, and I'm pretty good at being able to deal with judgment, but I wasn't naive that nobody was really doing it. And how would my normal day-to-day people who I interact with, employees, clients, how would they deal with that variable? And so it took me time, but I knew it was going to work. I knew that 98% of my best thoughts were never heard by anybody besides the people in the room or even in my own head. And um, and I was excited to put it out there. And the other thing about the, the, the evolution you've gone through is almost the opposite of some people where you've, you've gone from being, first of all, a business owner and then to running a marketing organization. Um, how does that sort of, I guess, filter change how you talk to clients or potential clients? You know, I think one of the things that's really worked for me is a lot of times I'm a better business operator than the people I'm talking to. You know, I'm not coming from an artistic, ideological 
point of view. I'm coming from a practical organizational point of view. Um, I've also sell, in essence, things that I've already done. You know, I take enormous pride in the fact that there are very few CEOs of any marketing agency in the world that actually do the craft that they're selling. They're bankers at best. And so I think um, I think it's a very, very, very big deal, and I think it really has uh, allowed us to have a totally different perspective. We are far more results-driven in our DNA than I think a lot of communications agencies. What do you think the advertising industry, the communications industry, what do you think they think of you? How do they perceive you? You know, look, I think I've been very aggressive in understating Vayner's scale. You know, I think maybe this can, you know, that, that just passed where we won a bunch of awards and people are starting to say, wait a minute, look at all these good people that work there. You know, I think we're starting to hide a little less. But, you know, I think a far majority think I'm a blowhard and, you know, a self-promoter and, you know, that there's not substance behind it. Where's the work, you know? Because we don't create a lot of propaganda around our work because we don't think that getting awards or headlines in magazines is really what we should be doing for our clients. Um, I think a lot of people don't think about us at all because we've been as an agency under the radar, but specifically to you, you know, I've done a really good job on LinkedIn in the last 18 months. And I think that's where a lot of people have discovered me in our industry and in the business world in general. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm a colorful language kind of guy and I'm, I'm definitely a Jersey boy and I'm even American to Americans. And so I'm sure there's cynicism, curiosity, um, and I respect all those things. I'm empathetic to any observation of me because I put myself out there and that's the cost of entry to do that. The reality and the honest truth is I enjoy being liked very much. So I don't like when people think I'm a bad guy. Uh, at the same token, these are people that are casting judgment that have never met me once in their lives. And so I have to be okay with that and recognize um, I don't get too high when somebody says I'm amazing. Uh, and I don't get too low when somebody says I'm the worst. And while we're sort of on perceptions, I suppose when I, I think about myself and what I think Vayner Media might be good at, I guess I look to you're the case study, where as a leader, you've built your reputation, your brand through using all of those tools available to you, particularly content marketing. Um, and I suppose I almost, my, my automatic thought then is that's what VaynerMedia will be good. If, I, if, I, if I'm a brand trying to build my leader's profile, that's what mm-hmm. I think of. What about when a brand is okay, we just want to build our brand, sell some stuff, not necessarily the personality of our leader. Do you, do you, do you feel that you've, you, you've widened and got the, the tools to do that? Well, look, I mean, you know, Budweiser, Pepsi, Mondelez, GE, Diageo, these are now five to eight year, year relationships at Vayner. I think that people with any level of business common sense realize these big companies are not enamored by my charisma on Twitter. These people are looking for business results. I would argue that we're an enigma in the fact that we can be perceived extremely narrow. However, I genuinely believe we build and create far bigger business results than the global creative shops 
that everybody puts on a pedestal that I think are selling vanilla in the form of television and matching luggage and outdoor and digital. And so, you know, I'm not too worried about how wide we're perceived by our competitors. I'm definitely concerned and passionate about how clients perceive us. We also have gone from zero to $175 million in revenue in 10 years, and we barely win any RFPs because people hand us business. There's a reason that's happening, and that is not because I'm cool or people want to give me business. It's because we're driving actual results, and I'm patient. And so I think that's a good observation by you. I think that all it takes is one meeting of a CAPE stack if we can just get to that. And more importantly, 10 years in, we have a lot of executives who now are, I would say that five to 10 of the CEOs or CMOs that have left and have gone to new gigs in the last five years, we've been the first or second phone call they've had. That's good. So we're growing based on internal reputation on people that actually work with us, not my personal brand's outside perception. Uh, another um, question I'd be interested to get your, your take or your, your perception of the industry. I uh, was listening to a po- podcast you recorded uh, back at Cannes in June with uh, Cindy Gallup. Yes. Uh, and she's had a lot to say around the challenges that women in the industry face, yes. diversity more generally. You obviously get to sort of see the industry in a number of different markets around the world. What's your take on what the impact of the Me Too movement has been on the media and marketing industry? Because it, it, it feels to me like, certainly in Australia, it's not had much impact. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that is interesting about the way I roll, I care so much about consumer behavior everywhere around the world. You know, I have a lot of thoughts on how TikTok is playing in Hunter Valley in Australia, but I have no idea the executive branches of Publicis or WPP or Omnicom. I just don't know. I would hope as a human that it's created good conversation and created opportunity. Um, But the truth is I genuinely don't know. Um, But to your point, I think the world is filled with Twitter keyboard warriors that don't actually deliver on those actions in real life. And so I'm hopeful, but you know, I'm just not sure. Changing tax to something you you referred to a few minutes ago. Um, You've, you've talked a bit recently about LinkedIn yes. and, and the momentum that you're getting from there. Well, why, and, and hey, we see the same thing. We get more, to, to Mumbrella, we get more traffic from LinkedIn than we do from Twitter than we do from Facebook, actually, at the moment. Why is it LinkedIn's moment now? They've done a really good job over the last five to seven years creating an infrastructure that allows for content distribution that is seen within the native nature of its platform. And it's a supply and demand of attention game. The main reason LinkedIn's working right now is because 98% of people are underestimating how powerful a platform it is. And is it? do you think it's each platform has its moment? Yes, because I think it's supply and demand of attention. And you've argued that, uh, that in LinkedIn, it's cheap at the moment. It's Organically, for sure. Its ad product is actually expensive because of the nature of its bottom pricing. It doesn't start at five cents like the other places do, or 10 cents. Um, it starts at $2 CPM, which allows for a lot of vulnerability of overpaying for things that are worth 80 cents. Um, but yes, it's organic reach. I mean, somebody listening right now who's a frustrated strategist, 
she or he can post something right now organically as a blog post with no audience in theory and it will be seen. And that's something that Facebook and Twitter both had moments in in the past. Obviously as they've grown, more people are talking to the same amount of people listening or ad products scale um, and fill those pipes. Another difference in, in style between you and maybe other large organization leaders is, is you know, you, you, you have, a, I think, as a point of pride, your level of being hands-on. You've, you've described yourself as both the CEO and the chief operations officer as well. Um, I, and I, I remember years ago interviewing Richard Branson and asking the question, well, what, you know, he was doing a lot of his dangerous stunts at the time and sort of finding that polite way of asking what, what happens after dies. you. And yeah, and he got there and was like, well, if I snuff it, well, and, and his argument was, well, it'll cost us a bit more in PR. It feels that like you're a bit more intrinsic to the organization. Are you, are you a key man risk, do you think? Yes. And what does that mean for your, your, your employees? It means that if I die tomorrow, they'll get very high-paying jobs because they'll be extremely sought after for their skill set. And another question I get asked sometimes is, is, would you ever actually sell the organization? Would you ever exit? You know, it's funny. What's unique about Vayner is it's being built so I can buy other businesses and run it through the Vayner machine. So it's the most unusual thing to ever sell. But I grew up a very big WWF fan, and there was a wrestler who I hated because he was a bad guy, and, I, and Macho Man was the champion, who was my guy, not Hulk Hogan, and he was a rival of him called the Million Dollar Man. And one of his favorite things to say was, everybody's got a price. And the reality is, if Disney or the Murdochs after their News Corp sale or things of that nature, the reality is if somebody calls me tomorrow and says, you know, I think you've on the verge of building the most exciting thing ever, and we need to have it, and here's $3 billion, I will sell the company. So... It's, of course I would sell it. It would take a price that nobody on earth is willing to pay. So I don't anticipate that. Um, and that's great because I really enjoy operating it and I know why I'm building it. I'm building it to buy IP and businesses and run it through. And what that means is I want to buy you know, K-Swiss and I want to take 25 key employees from Boehner, and now we are the executive branch of K-Swiss, and I want to do that at scale and in perpetuity. So I don't expect to, um, but I do get concerned, and that's the right word at times, that I am building something very unique, very special, and once everybody realizes it, some of the biggest organizations in the world may just want to overpay for it. I um I, I was listening to a, an interview you did with one of my my colleagues, Dean Carroll, in Singapore, and you talked about your ambitions to buy potentially a heritage brand, yes, to be a brand owner. Um, how do you go from ambition to execution on something like that? By doing execution for a long time, you know that was that was the singular reason Vayner was built in two thousand nine. So how are you going to do it? I'm how are you going to find a I'm brand? Gonna wait, I'm going to wait for the global economy to melt, and I'm going to take the money I've been saving and buy something. And uh, what's your perception on the global economy? There's a few wobbles at the moment. That'd be great. Because I don't like client services that much. And I mean that. I mean, I'm enjoy- I really enjoyed this chapter. I've learned what I needed to. I've met a lot of, I mean, the marketing world is filled with incredibly good people. Um, and, you know, I'd really prefer for 
China, what happened yesterday. I, I don't know when you're going to air this, but there's been a little wobble there. Let's call it last week. By Let's the call time it last week. <laughs> last week, China had a little bit of a wobble, corrected or later that week. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would be thrilled because that would mean that I could start really getting serious about my next chapter. And I'm very committed to not overpay. And right now, the world is very frothy. And to buy a meaningful, to buy Mentos, you know, which I just had one of, it would, I would have to overpay grossly when everybody's over leveraged like they are right now and the world melts, you don't have to overpay. You underpay. And so I'll wait. I took your advice and went onto LinkedIn and asked people, what should I ask Gary V? Um, I thought one of the really interesting uh, questions I got from someone was, um, the challenge of, this is from Matthew Moore, the challenge of finding questions for Gary Vee is that so much of his life has lived as a public performance and he's so vocal about his views that I feel like I kind of know the answers already. So perhaps my question is, Matthew's question, what don't we know about Gary Vee? I think that people would be very surprised outside of the people in this room who interact with me of how non-confrontational I actually am in real life. I'm a really tough guy on video and on stage but in real life, I, on a one-to-one level, I'm incredibly uh, interested in soft solutions. And, and I think that surprises people when they get close. Um, so I think that all of us act different in the room that we're in. And when I have the mic and nobody else does, and they're like, I'm about to go give this speech and 15,000 people are there, whatever it is, like, you know, I have to put on a show to get their attention to get my message across, that's not what I need to do when I'm sitting down with a, you know, associate creative director who's struggling with her boss or his boss, and I'm trying to find solutions. So, I noticed um, oh, a year or so back, um, uh, Mark Ritson, uh, the, yes. the marketing academic, he tried to pick up a a, a, a a fight with you, uh, an intellectual fight. Mm-hmm. Um, his argument, I think one of his arguments was that you didn't know the difference between marketing tactics and marketing strategy. And I think I even tempted you by email to try to get you to swing back. And to your point, you weren't running towards the fight. Um, yeah. So you do, you choose your battles. Yeah, I also, you know, I also think that hashing it out online is really the shortcoming of our society today. I have a lot of, I don't know a lot about Mark. That's just the honest truth. But the, the limited stuff I know, I have respect for his point of view. Um, and I don't, you know, you, you always have these two camps. You know, anytime Mark or anybody who's a traditionalist or, or whatever it may be um, get into a debate with me, inevitably their camp comes in and says, yay, you know, screw that guy, let's get him finally. And my camp comes in and, they, you know, and I just, I'm not comfortable in that level of like, negativity to be frank um and what i say to him and i've said to others is like hey let's go out to dinner if you're so inclined you know and i don't know this about mark but many people want to debate me because they want the attention you know it's like rapping battles you know everybody wants to get into a rap battle with drake or kanye it puts them on the map um so and i have no context whether that's mark's agenda or not but without knowing anybody at a human level, my initial intuition always is like, let's go have a meal. And if you really are just in it for the intellectual battle, well, we can have an incredible time for four hours and actually become mates. What Mark, 
has said and others is let's do a public debate in front of 10,000 people. That shows me the card that people are trying to build off of that and I don't like that. I'm not scared. Um, I'm just not interested in pandering in low-level psychological, you know, strategies. And so, you know, that's how I see it. And you mentioned that sort of traditional world of marketing. Um, Though, every time Mark comes after me, which happens once in a while, many people jump in and say Mark also goes after very traditional people. I think the guy who wrote the book... Yeah, he challenges Byron Sharp, who wrote How Brands Grow. Well, that's, you know, there was a kid who used to work for me, who now works at Google, who wrote me a 20-page article, in essence, and told me to publish it, where what he debates Sharp for versus what he debates me for is completely opposite. And here are the hundred examples. And I didn't go through it, but I know how smart the kid is. And, and so, and by the way, I don't judge Mark or anybody else for that. He may even ha- carry, you know, listen, I think I carry a lot of contradictory point of views. Um, I'm extremely passionate about the results at the end of the day. And whether those are in the short term or long term, um, that's how I think about the world. And when somebody says that I don't understand strategy, I understand tactics, but has never had a conversation with me, that's making assumptions. And um, you mentioned briefly traditional marketing or traditional marketers. How do you think about people who hey, send you a resume and they have a marketing degree? Would that give them an advantage in getting into your organization, a disadvantage, or wouldn't Neither. matter at all? No, wouldn't matter at all. You know, it's not an advantage, but, you know, all my pushback on, you know, some of the classic education stuff, it's not a disadvantage either. Um, it's a data point. And there are a ton of kids that were terrible at school and suck at being entrepreneurs. Just like there are plenty of people who've gone to great lengths to build out an incredible academic resume who then in the real world perform at a very high level. So I try not to, I, not, I try not to be the opposite version of what I have cynicism towards. And so in that scenario, it would have no um, strength or weakness to it. Vayner Media, you've, you, you, you've, you've obviously sort of got a, a footprint in, in Asia Pacific, in Singapore. Do you have ambitions for Australia? Yes. And how, how might that look? A moment in time. Between, you know, Australia, um, South and Central America, uh, mainland China, all those places, Australia, all those places will be dots on the board at some point because when I buy businesses and brands, one of the arbitrages I'm most looking forward to is expanding those IPs or brands into other parts of the world. I may find the greatest candy, you know, in Korea that I know exactly how to market in Australia, UK, and US. And I wanna be able to have that macro infrastructure in case I see it. So the way it will look in the short term or, or in the VaynerX, Media lens is somebody comes along and writes a big enough check to make me move quickly to open up shop so or- a client would drive it. A client would drive it or we would just be ready with enough great executives to expand. Singapore was more, we were just ready. Los Angeles was a client. So, you know, um, that's how I see it. Okay, another, uh, another question from, and I forget whether this one was from Twitter or from LinkedIn, from, uh, from Lincoln Eth- Ether, Easter? Ether, I think. 
quality to, and this is a, again mm. a good question mm. based on your strategy, quality content or quantity of content? Um, and he asked, you know, why, why spread yourself across so many different platforms? Because you're capable. Like, why did Deion Sanders play football and baseball? Because he was capable, but most people aren't. Um, first of all, quality needs to be debated. Who gets to decide its quality? The creative director? The brand manager? Who? Before a piece of creative sees the day of light, it cannot be decided what kind of quality it is. We need to understand the agenda of the creative. And so, for me, quantity is not debatable. I always tell my team, guys, gals, if you're going to deliver a piece of work three days late that a client was waiting for, that's not a debate. You are three days late. That is not subjective, that's black and white. Once you deliver that work, what she or he thinks of it is completely subjective. And uh, we see a lot of perfection and a lot of politics and a lot of subjectivity, which is just hiding insecurity in this industry. And so I do not understand how people don't understand that we live in a world of 10 to 15 digital platforms that really control the attention graph of our society. And for us to not be telling stories that are relevant to the 12, 15, 35 different cohorts that we could be speaking to across these five to 15 platforms is leaving something on the table. And I think agencies and startups and organizations need to restructure to be able to be a quantity and quality player in today's world, but a traditional creative department of copywriters and art directors and senior creatives debating work and then pitching two ideas is not built for a 2019 internet world, which is why they push so hard against quantity and and judge it as schizophrenia or not on brand, spray and pray, see what sticks. I see it as marketing for the sake of getting quant and qual feedback to do better marketing. I think we have probably just another minute or two left. So uh, let me uh, let, let, let me ask you one, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably get asked a lot. Which are the platforms to watch at the moment? You mentioned TikTok earlier. Is, is, is that the, the, the coming one that you would argue marketers should be looking at right now? For all the marketers that are listening, knowing the makeup of this audience, TikTok is important because just remember what you thought about Instagram and Facebook over the last 15 years. It starts super young, and then over time it ages up. And I do believe that we're in the moment of Instagram's prime. Instagram has become absolutely the prime place, much like Facebook was in 2011. And I think when you're in your deep prime, you're in the beginning stages of being past your prime. And I think that TikTok is the only platform that has that much use at that young of an age that has the potential to mature up and challenge. And so, yes, but... We've also already mentioned, I think every single person that's listening to this podcast should start producing content for LinkedIn. Every one of them. Every one of them. Gary, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella's B2B Marketing Summit is on the 5th of September with two international speakers. 
Lauren McDonald from IBM Watson Marketing will be talking about how you can stay at the front of an industry that's full of acronyms and buzzwords. And Shutterstock CMO Lou Wise will also be taking the stage to explain how B2B marketing can leverage viral marketing techniques and breaking news following the brand's successful Fire Festival campaign. It's a jam-packed program you won't want to miss, so get your tickets at mumbrella.com.au slash B2B. In the meantime, thanks, team. Thanks. Bye.